and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 344 and my conversation with percussion educator and private studio owner, performer, and composer, Angela Kepley. We'll get to Angela very soon. We are getting very, very close to the end of the semester here at Mizzou. We're in the midst of finals week right now, and I am currently in the midst of finishing out the semester with a lot of grading. A a lot. Just a lot. By this time next week's episode comes out, I should be completely in the clear and done with the spring 2023 semester. So close! One other personal item to mention, I found out at the end of last week that I was officially promoted to associate teaching professor here at Mizzou. Very excited to get this news. Just as an FYI, my teaching position here is non-tenure track. So there's no tenure to be granted, but it's still good news from my vantage point. As many folks teaching full-time know at the college level, in particular, you're very busy. And so something like getting promoted is both a long view of your working career and includes the short view of gathering materials and putting all of your documents together as the committees want it, with a lot of edits, making things look very good. It's intense to get all that done. But once it's out of your hands, at least for me, it's out of sight, out of mind. Get back to work. The process at Mizzou goes through multiple stages where your documents are completely out of your hands sometime in October. And then it has to go through three to four committees and stages to get to the end, which occurred last week, the first week of May, which was personally met with, oh yeah, that whole thing is also going on. Anyway, it was a great way to end semester and classes with that news. And I thank everyone who's helped me get here, particularly those of you who are listening to the show. It was mentioned in one of my letters as an important contribution that I am making And I'm further graced by the presence of so many great folks in the percussion world on this show. Thank you all again for your time and support. And let's get to some more content. Time to talk to Angela Kepley. Angela and I go back quite a bit, though it's been a long time since we've had the chance to chat. She and I met many years ago at PASIC and hung out a bit back then, but We really hadn't talked to each other in a long time, so it was great to reconnect here for the podcast. Angela's been teaching for quite a while and has built up a very successful percussion studio business in the Chicago, Illinois area. Her studio includes options for private lesson and ensemble performance, which she works in along with her involvement in a number of school programs throughout the area. She's also working as a fitness instructor. You'll get to hear a lot of fantastic information about making all of this work, both personally and professionally, and you'll get discussions of her compositions, her piano background, and so much more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on April 19th, 2023, and it begins right now. Give me a summation of your 
percussion responsibilities activities as they are right now? Um, the primary thing that I spend my time doing is uh, running my own private studio. Um, it's just me. I don't employ other teachers, um, but from my basement studio, I teach a lot of lessons um, and run an ensemble program. Um, it's been maybe 15 years or so that I, since I've run the ensemble program, I just started it because I like percussion ensemble and pulled a group of kids together. And now it's grown into um, much, much bigger than that. We do a yearly holiday ensemble concert. And then every winter, um, about January till about spring break, is we do a winter season that's more standard rep, um, getting, getting kids to learn how to play chamber music. So that's kind of my, my main gig. There's another local middle school that I run a percussion, percussion ensemble at that I, I go see them once a week. Um, I do a local high school drum line. I teach some fitness classes that I kind of stumbled into about six years ago, um, bar and cycle. Um, so I've been doing that for a while and I feel like that pairs with percussion beautifully. I'm sure we'll get to the, those topics later. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the rundown. And you, ru- you write music too. Yes, yes. Um, I started writing music, you know, a long time ago when I needed percussion ensemble repertoire that fit the instruments that I had, the students that I had, and my goals for them. And I ended up with this rather large pile of music <laughs> that was just for me that nobody had ever seen. And then I got in touch with uh, Nathan Daughtry at C. Allen and said, hey, do you want to look at this stuff? And so a bunch of it's out, out now to the world. So um, yeah. And I think, I think my most recent ones that are out are my duo collections, the dynamic duos. There's a snare drum book and a mallet book that are, are great for beginning through intermediate players. And remind me where you are located. I am in the Chicago suburbs. Yeah. Um, LaGrange countryside. It all blurs together. I'm pretty much straight West. Okay. What caused you to go ahead and do and just and focus on a studio teaching whether it was a plan to be a full-time thing or whether it was like it kind of got started and then it turned into it yeah great question so i did my undergraduate degree at millican university in music education so i got towards the end of that degree and realized i don't really want to teach band i want to teach the instruments that i love i don't want to teach all the other instruments So I had already decided at that point before I finished my degree that I wanted to do the private teaching route. Um, I did finish my music ed degree because it would have been silly not to at that point. I was that far into the, into the program. Um, And, you know, the edge, the education certificate has come in handy for sure in a number of situations early on, you know, before I had started the studio, I knew I wanted to, to do private teaching. And so I ended up after graduation, I ended up in the Chicago suburbs and started with three kids and then did a few, you know, worked a side job at an elementary school and did a couple of programs, um, just volunteer for kids and gave, gave out a little sheet saying, here's what your kid learned today, you know, and then families contacted me and said, Hey, we will not take lessons with you. And before you knew it, I had 15 students and then I had 30 students. And now I have more than that, I, enough, I have enough and, and a wait list that I need to sort through when summer starts. So, <laughs> oh, That's awesome. Well, just because you, you said this in your, your statement about the music ed degree is one of the benefits of that. 
you can kind of go to schools and be like, listen, I've, I'm certified or what, you know, whatever to kind of say like, here's what I do. I know what you do work with me. What, how does it, how does it end up helping? Um, I would say for me, the most um, beneficial thing has been in cases where, um, you know, if, if somebody needs a sub or um, if the main director has another task, knowing that they have other certified staff with the kids in the building is really nice. Um, there was, you know, a short time period where I did uh, like a maternity leave band subbing position. So I was clearly wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't certified. That was before my studio was really, really hopping. Um, but little things like that, that, um, that there just is no issue and it gets rid of any red tape of can this person come in to work with our kids or what are some hoops to jump through because I'm certified. It's just not an issue. And so there's just less paperwork to deal with. So describe your typical weekly schedule then. Every day is very different. I mean, a typical day will be, I teach my, oh, and I do, one of the things I do for private lessons is I do work um, at the school where I teach drumline. I do teach private lessons during the band classes at their school as well. I know a lot of instructors are in that position where they go into the school. So um, at Lyons Township High School, I go first period to the wind ensemble, which is their top band. You know, I teach my kids. I go teach some fitness classes. I might get some time off before I go to the other campus to teach more lessons during their band classes. And then after school, I've got an evening full at my home studio. Um, during certain seasons, we do during percussion ensemble season at my home studio, we do weekend rehearsals. And I just see them once a week for those groups. Every day is a little bit different, but that's kind of the rundown of what I do most days of the week. <laughs> So how much of the teaching is at your house? All of my after-school stuff and all of my studio ensemble things. So I've got the middle school ensemble where I go to them. Um, so the, I would say the majority of my teaching is in my home studio. Um, a lot of the, and everything just functions through the home studio. So even, um, even though I'm going to the school on some days, logistically it's handled the same way that if, as if it's here, it's just more convenient for the parents and convenient for the students and really helpful to the band program because they get more kids taking lessons. Was it through the volunteering that you got into school programs or did you have other ways that you got in, got involved so that you could recruit? I guess the way I got into LT where I have either kind of where I work most strongly at the school and most of the referrals are within the same district was um, just a referral from a student. I don't remember how I initially got connected with this family, um, but I know the mom just like talked me up to everybody she saw, <laughs> including the high school band director where her older kids went. Um, and eventually I got connected teaching there and really I haven't advertised in a very long time maybe since the first year or two, because I just didn't need to, you know, once you connect with enough people and then they just tell their friends and now everybody's, Oh, I got your name from this, you know, from these individuals in this mom's group, you know, um, that people just share who they enjoy working with. And so whatever your Avenue is, whatever your specialty is, um, I think that kind of takes care of itself in many communities. Um, there are other communities that maybe are not as populated that, you might have to have to take a little bit different tactic for recruiting. How do you handle equipment, 
payment, some of the the kind of the either I would mm-hmm. say the boring stuff, but also extremely important in running a home studio. Yeah. So in terms of equipment, um, I started out with very little, a drum set and a marimba. Um, I was very grateful to be able to purchase a five octave marimba one right after undergrad. Um, I won a competition there that gave me some funds to start that, (laughs) start that marimba funding process as many of us, you know, struggle to, to make that happen. So, um, I was pretty lucky that I was able to at least have a really nice marimba and a good drum set. Um, and then from there, you know, you get your, get your fancy snare drum, eventually get your vibraphone, get another drum set, get some toms, stumble across some timpani, you know, and, and as, I mean, it's been a number of years, but I felt like as I was really growing instruments, it was, what do I need now that's going to benefit the studio most? Um, what do I need for gigging that's going to benefit, um, you know, in terms of small instruments, do I really need to buy this thing? Can I function with that? And what's going to allow me to sound professional in the way that I want the way that my musicality lends itself. So, um, I guess, you know, if, if anybody is listening, that is figuring out how to navigate gear, um, it's what is, what is beneficial now, what is cost effective now? Where can I buy used things that are good quality? How do I know how to search for that? You know, if you know what you're looking for, you can find some good deals. Um, and again, what what do I need a professional sound? And what am I okay with being intermediate, depending on what your focus is? Um, you know, for me, congas would be an example of that. I'm not doing a bunch of um, Cuban music where I'm playing a ton of congas. So when I use my congas, it's typically in a percussion ensemble setting. So an intermediate model is just fine, you know, but I, I need some good sounding drum sets. I need good sounding cymbals for my ears to be happy. (laughs) So, you know, there are plenty of those things. Um, and then you also have to have space for that gear. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, right now I have three drum sets set up two five octave marimbas, two vibraphones, xylophone, bells, and a number of other toms, bass drums, conga. And then you have cases for all that stuff, which also takes up a lot of space. So it's evolving your space as you evolve your studio. And that's one of the challenging things to do a home studio is having enough space for that and also still having a home if you have other people that live with you <laughs> and other people that may or may not uh, tolerate the sound as you do. <laughs> so all of those things can be really challenging. But if you just take it one step at a time and navigate what is essential for right now, what do I need? What can I do in my town? What can I afford? Um, do I work for myself? Do I work for somebody else? I know that's a like a year-long conversation <laughs> with all those things with anybody's you know, if anybody's looking at building a studio. So on, on the space issue, whether you plan to think I'm definitely going to have a home studio or I'm going to work through a high school, however you were going to do it. Did that impact where you live? Because certain parts of Chicago are, I'm going to assume are much more expensive than other parts of the Chicago area. Yes. And where you can rent or buy also makes a huge difference. When I first moved up after undergrad, I had you know, small instruments and you know knew somebody who had an apartment for rent above their shop. And I literally had to take 
at least a drum. I don't remember if I took my, you know, multiple pieces of a drum set or at least a drum and set it upstairs and played <laughs> while she was downstairs to make sure I wouldn't be too loud while she had customers coming in. So that was like, you know, you get, you've got to make sure if you're renting somewhere that works. Um, in the next place I rented, I rented a house because I knew as I was growing, that's what I needed. Um, and I ended up taking up the entire front room, what would be a normal living room. And I also ended up taking over what would be a normal family room, all with percussion studio. If you have a family that does not function, if you are a solo individual, it's probably just fine. Um, but again, thinking about those things. So the next house was basement studio and like one upper level floor or room that was a little bit more separated. And then the house that I'm in now, um, we just bought two years ago that has full basement studio, completely separated upstairs. So family space can happen that's completely separate from studio space, separate entrance, separate bathroom. Anybody in the family does not need to see any student coming in unless they happen to be, you know, passing in, in the space outside. So um, yes, absolutely has affected every single place I've lived since I started doing this. When you say that you do, you do percussion ensemble at your house or chamber, yes. however, how, how does that work? What, what's the, how do you work out a schedule so that to accommodate all of the students who would need to be there to do that? Almost all of our rehearsals are on Sunday afternoons forever. Mm-hmm. Um, this past year, I had two of my advanced students who I knew had Sunday conflicts. So we worked out a, a Wednesday evening rehearsal for that particular group just for our one season. If they're going to be in it, that just has happened to be the time that is most available for most students over the years. Sometimes we can accommodate alternatives like we did this year. We may not be able to do that every year, um, but that's, that's about it. And Sunday afternoons, it's either full holiday rehearsal where you just kind of pick your, I've scheduled my order carefully, which is a whole nother um, skill set <laughs> and task um, to organize that, um, or during our regular kind of concert winter season, then it's here's your group, here's your time, here's your next group, here's your time, and that's they just come for ten weeks, and that's that's when they do it. You you maybe think about on the fees portion for the students mm-hmm. is the ensemble portion a like a wrapped into. Uh, uh, like a single price or do you, how do you, how do you price out the, the, the various experiences you give to students? Great question. So, and that kind of leads me back to one of your initial questions too, about billing and such. Yeah, yeah. Um, so private lessons are their, their own thing. Um, and then ensemble is just a flat fee for the ensemble season. So if you want to sign up for the winter season from January to March, um, that's one flat fee. If you want to do holiday ensemble, that just preps our, like our one big holiday program, that's a flat fee. And then all of the rehearsals and preparation is, is tied into that. Um, so those are two separate things. So I have had some students of my colleagues that have joined us for ensembles that aren't necessarily my private students. You know, I always have to be a little, a little cautious to take non-studio people. I need to understand their background and their training to make sure I place them in the right group. Um, but it's always fun to have some, some other um, other dedicated musicians of, um, of my 
my colleagues, students too. So that's cool. Um, one of the things that I have found very helpful in the billing side is using mymusicstaff.com because there's a lot of things. Yeah, you seem familiar. <laughs> well, I know that. Um, yeah. I know at some point because I haven't been. I haven't been doing private lesson teaching for a long time. But I know that there was like a switch at some point where it could go through a third party source where you're just like, wow, that's that seems just easier. <laughs> yes. So it, it makes a ton of things easier. There are calendar things if you need to cancel a lesson, if you need to sign up for a makeup lesson. And then there are certain, you know, for billing, a lot of people do automated. I still do some automated, some I like to have hands on. I just feel like there are less errors sometimes when I'm when I'm like I'm in charge of hitting the button rather than just leaving it up to the the um, internet powers that be but that that system has helped so much it is worth every penny um and it, I mean it's really not very expensive so again other private teachers who are a little overwhelmed in the scheduling and bookkeeping side of things definitely look into into that there are some other um companies that do similar things but um very well worth it Maybe you don't have to do as much chasing. I mean, you probably have to do some, but you don't have to do it in the same kinds of ways that you would once have had to, right? Yeah, that's true. And having clearer studio policies that early on when you're building your studio, you're like, okay, well, you have this conflict. And I'm like, okay, I'll try to work around it. But it never goes well because even if you think I'm going to not work this half hour, I'm going to work it over here. It never works that way. You end up just working all the time, all hours of the day all day long. <laughs> so having clearer cancellation policies, um, the, that's something that I've grown into over the years. And it's, you know, it's important to have flexibility and to make exceptions when there are extenuating circumstances. It's important to talk to your, to your families and make sure that everybody's on the same page. But if you, as a teacher, respect your own time and set clear boundaries, then your families are going to follow that. Um, and, you know, anybody who doesn't, is it's probably not the right fit to work, you know, work with that family, with that teacher. Um, yeah. So everybody I've been working with for years has been very respectful of that. And sometimes you just have to communicate about things and be clear and leave the emotions out of it. And, yeah. you know, because of the fact you said you've been on a, on a wait uh, for your studio, uh, I would assume that that means that you have also figured out for yourself, what's where the boundary are, boundaries are time-wise for you. In terms of like, this is as much as I can do, and everyone needs to stop talking to me, <laughs> right? Like, yes. you're not gonna, I'm, you're not gonna convince me to open up a spot that I don't have, right? Yeah, yes. So you know, as I used to teach, you know, till nine p.m. all the time, and I just can't do it. I, I don't have the energy. I'm too old for that. And I got married in 2019, and my spouse made it very clear that. I'm not going to work all day and then you work all night and we never see each other. Like we have to have some sort of compromise. So we discussed what that would look like, you know, and uh, came to an agreement on where is my cutoff time? When am I actually home? Um, you know, and there are, again, there are exceptions for every job. There's the, okay, there's this extra event or this extra late night, or I need to squeeze in makeups on this day for various reasons. But, but I can make those decisions um, that I don't feel like I have to do it all the time to accommodate somebody who is prioritizing, you know, baseball over percussion, you know, like it's for every family. It's what do we need to do in this moment? What are we valuing? What can we shift? Can we just make it work when we can? 
when you start doing, when you start writing, um, what's, was it mostly just you didn't have enough stuff or they had run through everything that you had and you're like, I don't have any more pieces. What am I going to do? What, how does that, what ended up happening? Well, I, I'd been arranging for a long time. Um, I mean, even when I was in, when I was a senior in high school, I was asked to teach and arrange pit music for another local, smaller high school. Like when I was still in, in high school. Sure. So I, I was, I was like, um, okay, I've never done that, but I'll do, I'll do it. And I was, you know, had fun doing it. So I just had been arranging things for a while. Um, and when I really started writing my own, the amount of students I had were, were fairly small, but I just didn't have a lot of gear. And uh, one of my pieces that's fairly popular, Cinco Shift, I don't remember what name it had initially, but I, I, I wrote it way long ago in like the early days of, days of the studio because like, okay, I want a vibraphone piece, but I only have four kids and I don't, I don't have repertoire that this makes. I'm like, I'll just write for four of them on one vibraphone because I have one vibraphone. And, you know, there were a lot of ped- pedagogical goals that I had for them. There just wasn't a piece that fit of here's the level, here's what I want to teach them through this season. So a lot of my writing is very pedagogical of here's the skill set that they have. Here's the skill set I want them to have by the end of the season. And here's a piece that's going to allow them to have fun and accomplish all of those goals. I, I started with that. I just couldn't find the pieces that I needed. And now there's so much more repertoire out than when I started you know, back then. And it's also easier to find because a lot of companies have a greater or more detailed online library of, of their music. So it's, it's easy to find a lot more stuff now. I do find that the beginning levels are still, still very challenging to find good stuff. I try to keep doing it, but because I teach so much, I don't often say, here's a composition project and actually make time to do it. <laughs> so I work better if I have a commission that I'm, you know, that I'm doing, or if I have a specific goal, like the, the most recent thing that I finished was um, a marimba solo for one of my seniors, because it was just like finding like, okay, what's going to fit, what's going to fit your senior project. And I knew the kind of pieces that he liked and I was like, okay, I'm just going to write you a piece because I had some ideas of, and so that's how that one came about. Um, so little things like that, that if I have, if I have a goal and something specific to write for, then I make sure I get my time <laughs> either at the instrument, improvising some ideas or in Sibelius actually writing it out. You don't finish your day and be like, let me, let me, I've got a half hour. I'll just uh, write some stuff. It's like, no, it. You need a you need a, a direction immediately. Yeah, I I can't remember the last time that I had like a random half hour. Right, sure, of course. <laughs> Dumb question. Like, <laughs> like many of us, right? Like yes. even if we think we have a half hour, right. something takes that time and it's gone before you know it, right? right? When did the teaching fitness classes part get wrapped in here? I've been teaching already for about six years. Um, I started going uh, to a fitness studio just as a client um, and I loved it. So I was just, I was there regularly just being healthy. Um, And the owner approached me and asked me if I was interested in teaching. I'd never in my life thought about teaching fitness ever. 
I just thought it was important to work out. I liked, I liked doing it. I found that, uh, the bar workouts, it was the daily method at the time, um, just a bar fitness studio. Um, but that, that was sort of turned into, into my jam. I had danced for several years and I was like, okay, here's something that's safer than is more, um, my speed at my age. This is, this is, this is the right fit. So she asked me to teach and was like, Oh, I, I don't know. I, um, I was really caught off guard. I was like, I'll think about it. So after thinking about it for a bit, I said, if I can do my training over the summer, I'm in. If, cause we were approaching, you know, it was maybe this time of year. If we have to wait till fall, there's no way I can swing it because by the time you add in all of the fall music stuff and start of the semester, it's just not going to happen. So we did, I, we did all the training over the summer. I started teaching a few years later, I added teaching cycle. Um, so I teach cycle at that same studio. Um, it's, it's now called form bar and fitness in LaGrange. It's just a boutique studio, very specialized, um, into group fitness classes. And I love it. So fun. So grateful that it aligns with percussion. <laughs> so because as a percussion teacher, we are staring at people's form and movement every day. Because if you don't approach with the proper alignment, with the proper posture, you're going to injure yourself and you're not going to sound good. And the way that we move must be efficient, whether you're moving across the drum set rapidly or you know having a big span across a marimba. The way you set up your body is essential to be safe and to sound good. So it's the same thing in fitness. I'm checking people's alignment, especially in the, in the bar-based method. You're looking for alignment and making sure people are moving safely with engaged muscles. And then, you know, then you figure out what movements are, you know, you want to, to plan in your class. And um, cycles really fun for me because you can just plan a really fun playlist. <laughs> And say this is going to pump people up. This has got a good beat to it, and yeah, yeah. Um, and then you, know, you, you pick then your tempo like, for your right. Then you then you just cycle pieces of wood the whole time, and then that's where you go. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've actually connected with several families through the fitness studio that end up sending me their kids to play percussion because you know we get in discussions about oh your playlist was so good you know and then they realize I'm a percussionist and like oh that makes sense and then you know they send me their kids yeah I mean you know there's there's for most of rebounds B there is a pretty clear uh beat so you know it's fine it works out yeah <laughs> what's fascinating about bar is um it's hard it's really hard yeah <laughs> yes Sneaky hard is sneaky the way hard. one. Yes, one client said that. I was like, "That's perfect." Sneaky hard. Yes. My my wife did it for a little while, and uh, and she was just like, she would just get so sore after. But then she brought home one of the videos, and so I watched it, and and whoever was doing it, it felt like they were like, "And now take your take your leg and place it over your head." Okay. <laughs> like it was so calm, and yet you're sitting there like, "How am I? I cannot." And, and it didn't seem like it was at all a big deal for this person on the video. It seemed like they were bored and <laughs> what they were doing was so hard. Yeah. Well, the thing I love about it too, is it really is like a fitness style that works for everybody. I mean, we have clients in their twenties, we have clients in their seventies, we have marathon runners that, you know, use this as a strengthening based, um, you know, exercise to, to balance out their running. Like it's no matter who you are and what your exercise style is, there's something to benefit from it. 
And it is a lot of core work. And sometimes it looks like you're in stillness doing nothing when really your whole body is like so fatigued and trying to hold a, po- a position. <laughs> when does the, is, is, is that something that you are typically doing sometime in the middle of the day when your other teaching is done? Yes. For me, I mean, at the studio, they do the normal, like super, super early things, which I don't function at that time of day. It does not work for me. I have at times done, you know, like one evening a week, but I had to let that go because there are just too many other music things happening. So it's the the windows between my daytime band periods and my after school stuff. So those daytimes and kind of sporadically at the fitness studio, um, either teaching or taking. Do you teach uh, both of those activities the same day, or is it like every other, or how does, how does that work? You know, I teach like bar one day and then cycle one day. And then on the weekends I do a double, which I actually really like. There's a, I've got kind of a following of, of people who like to do the double with me. We'll cycle first and then do a bar class right after, um, that, that I really enjoy that. It's like you work hard, you get all the hard stuff out and then well, and then I just teach the other one. I don't do, you know, when you're teaching bar, you don't have to do a lot of things, but, right. uh, but yeah, but that's a really fun one. So it's been like the Sunday, sort of the, the Sunday, um, I don't even know what you call it. Like, I don't know, church for us, non-churchy sure. Sunday people. <laughs> yeah. It's just what we do on Sundays. It's the flow. Right. Aside from the alignment and the other physical issues that are similar, what's similar in or different in the, in the teaching of these courses? The style of instruction differs from private to group. You know, the same way that you would teach an ensemble, you're going to teach that ensemble differently than you would teach a private lesson. You know, content is different, like the moves that you're doing as opposed to creating a musical phrase and like working on stuff. But as a teacher, a teacher is a teacher. So as long as you understand the content you can instruct it in a way that's effective for those of us who enjoy teaching what, whatever your modality is, you can enjoy teaching it as long as you really like the content and it speaks to you and you feel passionate about it. So the teaching portion, I feel like is kind of the same. It's just a matter of the content. Are we breaking things down and working through a musical phrase? Are we working on a technique that we can instruct, you know, how the, how the stick rebounds off, off the drum or are we talking about foot foundation and the way that you curl your bicep, you know, like things like that. Angela, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Middle of nowhere, Southern Illinois. Um, I went to high school at Newton high school. It's near almost nothing. Um, Effingham is the closest small town that people may have heard of where 57 and 70 cross where the two mm-hmm. interstates intersect. Yep. Newton had the legendary band director of Carol and Dominic, uh, Miss D is what we called her. And um, she was my teacher for a little bit of middle school. And then she moved to the high school. And then I had her again in high school before she retired and um, just legendary. So I am very grateful to have had her that really, I mean, she set the the foundation to have a great music program in a small town. And so, so my... Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a, more of that in a yeah. shortly. So do you have any family members in the arts? Yes. So that, yeah, that's what I was getting to. My family okay. is very musical anyway. Like we get together and everybody's singing and somebody's playing the piano and, you know. And then I, one of my uncles ended up being a band director 
and then is now a principal. Um, but when he was a band director, I was in high school and shadowed him for a day. And, um, you know, so we did that, that whole fun thing of like, do I want to do this? Yeah. So, I mean, I do have a very musical family, but setting, setting up through, you know, I was forced to take piano lessons as a kid, which I was very, you know, I had my ups and downs until one day I was like, Oh, this is, this is great. This is, I like this, you know, this is beneficial, but it took me a lot of years to get there. And then eventually fell into the percussion side. When I started in middle school, I actually played the saxophone first. And then when I got to high school, I saw my older cousin who, who gave me that drum head. Um, she was in the pit and I saw this concert where they did like a mallet feature County Clare by, um, Steinquest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That arrangement. And I saw it when I was, you know, an eighth grader and I was like, I want to do that. And for in that particular school, middle of nowhere, they took piano players to be pit people to do all the keyboard percussion. So they were like, okay, you can join the pit. Everything was marching band focused. So, so I did, so I didn't play saxophone anymore. I just played keyboard percussion all the way through high school. Um, I kept doing all of my piano lesson things, um, auditioned for colleges on piano, mm-hmm. got into Millican, decided to go there. And so I get to Millican as a piano major, as a music ed student, and most piano majors are doing the vocal track and I'm doing the instrumental track and they're like, okay, what's your secondary instrument? Um, I don't know. I played mallets in high school and they're like, go talk to Brian Justison. Well, so then I started taking percussion lessons, loved it. Just like, I never drummed until I was 18. Like I never played drums until I was 18. I just did piano and keyboard percussion all the way through. We had students from Eastern Illinois university coming to our high school to work with us during marching band season. So I had some pretty advanced four mallet skills that I didn't realize were advanced. It was like, this is just what you do. (laughs) So I, I luckily had, you know, a pretty solid leg up on that. And because I had some mallet technique, then you have at least some stick technique. And, and my teacher at Millican, uh, Jeremy Brunk, um, he was so patient with me learning the fundamentals of snare drum. (laughs) And then about halfway through my undergrad, I switched my primary and secondary instruments. So percussion became my primary instrument and piano became my secondary instrument. Um, so then I finished my music ed degree, started my private studio, did that for about five years, kept my private studio and went to Northern Illinois university for my, um, percussion performance master's degree. So I did percussion performance there, kept my private studio. I cut it back for sure. Cause I had to, but I don't know how I quite made it through all of that at the same time, but somehow managed and then finished my degree and kept teaching. When you start working in percussion, you're just kind of doing it because they need you to do it. It seems like, like, or were you like, I, I actually want to do as much as possible, but it just ended up not being a drum thing. Yes. Um, I loved it. I loved every moment of it, but it was very, it was, here are your drummers and here are your piano mallet people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have the opportunity. Like there was, you know, like I sat at the drum set and like played a couple things that my friend showed me to do, but I was never you know, it was, it was never fostered in me of like, you should be a percussionist. Like yeah. that word. I don't know that even was a thing. Like you're a drummer or you're a mallet player. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, percussionist. That would, that was, that was a different 
whole whole genre of people that that was not fostered. Yeah, and I think even like my parents were very encouraging for music, but in their minds, I was still a piano player. Sure. So why would we do drumming stuff for our piano player? Yeah. How um, competitive was the high school for on the marching side? Um, very. I mean, we we just did all like the Southern Illinois competitions, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the Southern half of the state. But I remember U of I was always our, our big one during the Miss D era. We won almost everything almost all the time, you know, and we, there were the rival, the rivals that were like, Oh, we got second to them this year, you know? And it was, you know, there were, there was some of that that was really fun, but in her era, um, she had excellent bands. And so we were used to working hard and almost every weekend we were going somewhere to compete. So. Well, what made her that good? She just had spirit. Like she was just dedicated so much of herself. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that really made her a great educator is she believed in every single person and she made every single person feel valuable. I remember at her memorial ceremony several years ago, so many people showed up. And just to have really generations of students that she affected and helped people believe in themselves. And no matter who you were, no matter how, what background you were, no matter what socioeconomic status, no matter what confidence level you had, she made you feel important and valued. And I think that is the key to her success because then when she wanted you to work harder at music, you believe that you could. And it sounds like she also knew what she was doing, which was is the other. Oh part. yeah. Yeah. That's key. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to believe in yeah, yourself. She, it's um, important to also like know what you're, you're, you're pointing them towards. <laughs> yeah. And you know, back in the day, she, I know she got her degree from Southern Illinois and that was, I don't even know what decade that would have been a long time ago, long time ago. You had mentioned that you, you did dance as well when you were growing up. Uh, Not when I was growing up Um, before I started teaching fitness. Yeah. That was Uh, one of those, you know, like I'd never had the opportunity to dance, but I always wanted to. So in my mid twenties, I went through some hard times and decided to enroll myself in dance class. So I did that for six or seven years. They even kind of roped me into doing some competitions with them on occasion. And I was like, eh, sure, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I mean, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time dancing for several years and took every style that I could, that I could possibly fit in my schedule. Yeah. So as I, I would teach and I would go to dance class and then teach some more and I just kept me going. So you did, was it jazz, ballet, tap, or the the usual three and then other stuff too? Yeah, I actually didn't do a lot of jazz, um, ballet, modern, tap, hip hop. Those were kind of mm-hmm. my, my, my four that I did pretty continually. A, a little jazz here and there, but yeah. not too much of it. Well, that'll build up your, uh, your playlist ability too, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that... <laughs> Make us who we are. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess I got some inspiration from that or a little of this. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's great. Were you doing anything else to fill out your time in high school? It, sports, student government, church, anything that anything else that aside from what you mentioned? 
played volleyball most of high school. That was, that was good. I liked that. That was really fun. I did a lot of church things. Not all of that was my jam. I, there was, there was one particular youth group that um, was not my main church that I did a bunch of stuff with because it was fun. And we like, you know, took a trip and you know, fun things like that, that it was more people my age. Um, nothing wrong with the church I grew up in, like wonderful people, like just genuine, genuinely wonderful people, especially at the time, you know, when you're a teenager and you got to like figure out where you fit. I did a lot of churchy stuff, but it wasn't necessarily um, my option, my choice. <laughs> at Milliken, what's, d- explain or t- discuss what uh, the program is over there or what it was when you were there at least. Yeah. So Milliken is a small liberal arts school in Decatur, Illinois, in the center of the state. Not much is in Decatur or around Decatur, but Milliken itself is absolutely incredible. The percussion department, they released a, an album, I think it was either right before I got there or just when I first started that was titled Best Kept Secret. And mm-hmm. I really kind of think that like that's a pretty accurate description of that percussion department um, that and now it's a little bit more well-known because they've played at PASIC a couple times. And um, actually my first PASIC I ever went to was because Milliken won the ensemble competition. And I got to perform with that group um, when they played at PASIC. So just remarkable. So Brian Justison was the head of, head of the department um, when I was there. And uh, Jeremy Brunk started teaching there. I, I'm pretty sure his first year of teaching was my first year as a student. Um, and I cannot be more grateful for any single individual who has shaped my path because he was so patient with me when I was learning things. And he really influenced the way um, that I experienced music and even viewed new music styles that I hadn't been exposed to before. Brian Justison is now um, doing some admin stuff at Milliken. I, I director of the school of music. I don't remember his official title, but something like that. And then Jeremy Brunk, um, Dr. Jeremy Brunk is now heading the, the um, percussion department over there and just absolutely phenomenal. So if anybody's looking at a school that's really going to foster you as an individual, that's a great one to look at. It's a small school. So, you know, if you're into spending tons of hours doing marching band, Milliken's not your, not your choice. <laughs> um, but if you want people to give you lots of care and opportunities, um, it's a great, not just the percussion department, but the whole school of music is really fantastic. What was the transition like for you to, to actually start drumming since that hadn't been what you were doing percussion wise? Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point, it's a long time ago. So if I can, <laughs> what I think when I think back about stuff like that, like I remember, I remember what it was like to learn how to do a double stroke roll and get the stick to bounce how you want it to bounce and how to control that rebound to get your, you know, your timing and your spacing that I feel like a lot of percussionists or a lot of teachers probably don't remember that learning process because they were too young when they learned how to do it. So I do think it was really valuable for me to like, I remember sitting in my dorm room with my practice pad and just, nope, nope, that's not it. Nope. Oh, there's one. Okay. Nope. That was not it. <laughs> and just like learning how to control that rebound and how to get a clean double. So again, I think there's a lot of value in understanding that learning process and being older. But yeah. I just loved it. I mean, there's the rhythm, the, the, the tempo, the pulse, 
connecting as a percussion ensemble, um, you know, or a drum line. Like I didn't do you know, drum line when I was at Millican. Um, but to have the drumming side of it, I mean, I'd always loved rhythm and beat and then, you know, coming from a piano background and a, just a musical family, that's, that was always kind of always, always kind of in me. Um, so just having training to understand what my hands were doing was, I just loved it. How big was the studio when you're there? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to guess between 20 and 30. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty big. It's big enough to hold two solid ensembles. We had a whole house that was turned into a percussion studio, you know, and now they've, they had renovated it after I left and now they've moved into a, a new space, um, that I haven't seen yet, but they've been there for a few years, but, um, yeah, it was, it was the percussion house had its very unique character. (laughs) When I was at UNC Greensboro, we had a percussion house. Uh, before they moved into the new building and it was the left it was ours but it was a it was not a great structure <laughs> you mm-hmm. know so i don't know if yours was like better just or it was just like it was ours and we liked it <laughs> yeah i mean it had its funny quirks of like here's what used to be this large bedroom that you're gonna have like a couple marimbas and just set up a, the nice thing is you could set up a multi-piece and yeah. leave it right <laughs> but exactly. like what would have been the bathroom off of this space is now this random pink tiled closet that has Tom's in it. (laughs) Okay. All right. And our main rehearsal space was two rooms kind of put together, but there was a step in the middle. So you have, (laughs) you have two levels for the big rehearsal room, but you know, we made it work. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) See, they just don't plan like that anymore. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, in my current space, I, you, I mean, you can probably see kind of some of this. So really lovely fireplace that they put in the middle of the basement. Awesome. Yeah. Can't use that. Can't use that with like, you know, five octave marimbas and a whole bunch of drums on the side to side. So you, they didn't plan that when they built this house for my right. percussion studio, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a lovely fireplace, but you know, <laughs> not really functional in the middle of my percussion studio. Yes. <laughs> Don't you dare turn it on or put a fire nope. in there. Cause <laughs> I will kill you. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, With a group that large, did Milliken have the equipment? I mean, you had the house, but I mean, did did they have the equipment to do all a lot of different literature or were you, was that limited at all? No, it was a ton of stuff. Yeah, awesome. Ton of stuff. Um, I never, I mean, I don't remember a moment where there was something that we wanted to do that we couldn't do. We had plenty of marimbas and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, big set of timpani, really nice set of timpani in the percussion studio, different set of timpani in the rehearsal spaces, you know, across the street. Like, um, yeah. And I don't remember even having to sign out practice rooms. Mm-hmm. I think you just showed up and went in whatever room was open mm-hmm. or if somebody had, you know, like, if you needed the five octave and somebody was in there, it was like, Hey, when are you going to be done? Okay. I'll come back then. Yeah. You know, um, it was, it was pretty relaxed. They had plenty of stuff. I never, I never felt like I couldn't get into a space to practice when I needed to. Yeah. When you're doing more of your studies and you're, you're doing maybe more mallet or multi stuff because of your background in marching band in a pit, 
how did that influence what you were learning as a private student for solo keyboard literature, for example? Uh, I remember like the earliest pieces I remember doing um, were Yellow After the Rain and the Mexican Dances. Sure. Um, so I, I think, oh, and maybe Monograph 4, mm-hmm. Richard Kipling oh, yeah. piece. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so, I mean, thinking back, I, he probably gave me all the standard stuff he would give most people, but I probably just absorbed it fairly quickly considering the background that I had. Um, again, drumming stuff was a different story entirely, but mallet stuff, I just, you know, whatever you hand me, I'm like, okay, I'll learn. Yeah. yeah. You know, at some point I remember learning prism. And I, I just was working on getting it up to tempo and in a lesson, I was like, okay, I'll do a rep. And he's like, okay, here's a click faster. Okay. Here's a click faster. Except every click, he actually went like two or three clicks. And he's like, ah, oh, here's your tempo now. I'm like, I, and I had this like, just revel. I'm like, you tricked me, but it really worked, you know? <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, and then Phoenix. I played Phoenix when I was it would have been in my senior year. Ooh, what is it? Uh, Mache, I think it, for vibraphone and nine toms. Oh wow! I don't even know if I such a cool piece. I love that piece. Cool. Like, I mean, again, I haven't. I don't think I've played it since. Maybe like little bits here and there. Have you even heard it since? I don't know of anybody else who's ever played it except <laughs> my teacher and myself. Like, I, I'm sure that. Brunk played it at some point and he, you know, showed it to me and was like, yes, I want to play this. This is awesome. Um, but I remember doing that my senior year and just loved it. Just one of my, like some really cool musical elements that you present a theme on the vibraphone and then you play it again on the toms and how that relates. And then you're playing both at the same time throughout a lot of the piece. And that was I, one of my favorites. I remember yeah. doing there. <laughs> that's, that's really great. You said early on that you knew you were doing an ed degree, but you knew Mm -hmm. like this is, you're not going to do the band director thing. Yeah. So how do you decide what the next thing is then for you? Great question. Well, at the end of undergrad, okay, I'm going to sprinkle in some personal things that led me to where I ended up going. (laughs) Um, At the end of my undergrad, I had gotten married and he got a job in the Chicago suburbs. So we moved up to the suburbs. And again, I was not applying for band director jobs because I knew that's not what I wanted. But we figured once we know where we're going to be, then I'll start trying to build a studio. Um, I had, because I had my music degree, I also applied for a sub certificate. So then I could sub at all the schools and you know, make some money while I built my studio. Well, there was something that got misfiled in the ROE. So it just took extra long for my sub certificate to arrive. Took long enough that they offered, you know, the school that one of the schools in his district was looking for a teacher's aide. It was like, oh, we got an extra first grader that put us over the numbers. And now we need to hire a numbers aide just to have in this room. So it gave them time to offer me that job. And I was not used to work working with first graders, but I'm like, okay, it's a job that's steady and I will do it every day and I will have a job. So I did that. Um, it was very eye-opening for me as a, uh, with my training being music student, normally working with grades five and older. And I now with 
26 first graders every day. Like, wow, this is what you do in first grade? Like, you practice writing the number three. Oh, and it was very eye-opening. Like, this is what first graders do. So anyway, it, very, very different than where I thought I would be. But I spent a school year in that classroom and meeting all of the families I met. I had a number of those kids who either shortly after or later in life ended up becoming either a piano student or percussion student, or then those family referred me to, you know, dozens of other families. So I do think that the connections that I had there kind of led me to meet all the people that, that I, you know, then taught and grew my studio from. But it was, I was grateful in the fact that I didn't have to make a living to support myself in Chicago alone right away. Because <laughs> otherwise, I, well, one, I probably would not have ended up in this area. Um, and two, I would have had to take a different path um, to where to where I got. So I was, I was fortunate that I had some wiggle room in order to, you know, have some odds and end jobs in order to eventually build my studio. And after one year of that, I didn't need an everyday job because I had enough students. And then I would still sub from time to time, kind of, again, in that district. Um, but I could pick and choose the days or the times that I was able to go. So that was nice to be able to do for another year. I don't even know if I did it for two. I got asked to be the private instructor at the high school during their band classes. And again, I have been doing that for, I don't know, 15, 16 years now, I think. So I, I don't know if that answered your initial question yeah. well it did, <laughs> it did. although you, you said something I'm, I'm just just as a follow-up where you kept saying mm -hmm. uh you know teaching first grade or being in the first grade classroom was eye-opening mm -hmm. i don't know if you were meaning that in a positive negative or just eye-opening <laughs> it just it, it just is i mean for people who were around small kids yeah. it probably it's was probably fine, fine. Yeah. very normal yeah, yeah. um but i I didn't really grow up with a lot younger siblings or family members. It was like a pod of my generation. We're mostly the same age. And then we moved on into life that right. um, I didn't spend a lot of time. You know, when I was in middle school, high school, college, I did not spend a lot of time with babies and elementary school students. Gotcha. So that was, it was just out of, out of my norm that I, it, again, just, it, it just is of if there's a certain age group that you're not used to spending time with, and then you spend time with them, it, you really see like, oh, this is this is what they do. Okay, all right. <laughs> right to number three over and over, as you said. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like when I go visit my siblings. Of like, oh, this is because I don't have my own human children. So when I go visit my siblings and see my nephews, I'm like, oh, yeah. this is what your normal day is. This is different than my normal day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not good or bad. It just is. Yeah, yeah. Just going through your what you st stated about your timeline. You go. You get a master's. Yes. And when is, is that? Um, is that about at this time, or is that later? I took about five years between my bachelor's and my master's. I knew I wanted to go at some point, but I felt like it wasn't necessarily in my best interest to go right after undergrad to, to do school and school and school and school. Right. Like I just, I need a break from school. I need to teach for a while. 
Um, so when I went to grad school, I knew that I didn't want to give up my studio to move to a different city because that to give up a studio to go to grad school to then start a studio again doesn't make sense because I'm still, you know, at that time was still planning on doing my same job, which I still am doing, you know, a decade later after grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So my stipulation was it needed to be within driving distance and I needed to make sure I could still do my job while I'm doing school. Um, so that puts me, and it needed to be a program that I actually wanted to go to mm-hmm. not just somewhere that maybe wasn't a good fit for me not that it's not plenty of great programs around here so i ended up at northern i don't think i even took any other auditions i think i just decided northern is where i wanted to go mm-hmm. and i auditioned eventually got in there yeah i remember the phone call of like okay well we can't offer you the um assistantship because somebody else got that position but we can still offer you a position in the studio. And I'm like, okay, well, I have a job. I don't need a job, but yeah. I'll go. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, um, the professor that called me was kind of surprised of like, Oh, you are coming, even though we can't offer you the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. Um, was yeah. So I drew, wait, say again. Was that Holly? Rich Holly? Uh, no, Greg, Greg Beyer. Oh, right. right. Okay. So yeah, Rich had moved on into the administrative role uh, mm-hmm. by the time I got there. Um, yeah. So Greg Beyer and, uh, Robert Chapel were mm. my teachers at Northern. Um, yes. Wonderful people. And now Ben Walland is there since Robert is retired. Just fantastic, fantastic individuals. Yeah. So I drove out to Northern, which is a good hour one way, mm-hmm. multiple days a week <laughs> and somehow made it through two years of that, of trying to manage both at the same time. Um, I don't look back. (laughs) Yeah. I don't look back at those times often, like sure. Certain elements like there, you know, there's memories or experiences, but thinking at the whole thing is a big picture. Anytime I think about those times, I'm like, I genuinely don't really know how I did that as most of us feel about our grad school years. Yeah. (laughs) It just one, one step at a time, one day at a time, one task at a time. And somehow you get to the end. And so that's, that's good. Well, so you said you had to be there multiple days a week. Does that mean that you could you or were you putting your like your teaching on, let's say, Tuesday, Thursday, and then you would go Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something like that? Or were you frequently doing the school and then going home and teaching after school? I think all of the above. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. The answer is yes to that question. Yeah. I think most days... I was at school all day and then teaching all evening. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I would drive in the morning and sometimes I would just drive late at night after my teaching and crash with a friend if I had to be up early. Yeah. Gotcha. First for rehearsal or class. Yeah. So variety of. Gotcha. At Northern Illinois, what at that point for you um, in terms of instruction, what kinds of things were you either looking for from the instructors? What kinds of stuff did they feel like you needed to kind of either catch up or get better at? What did you see as the kind of the goal, both sides of the equation, if you know? I don't recall, honestly, having any like specific goal. We just played a lot of rep. 
I got a lot better at time, especially because I was the constant in uh, drumming part one. Mm, okay. Yeah. So to play, <laughs> to play that without moving when somebody else moves, yeah, yeah. that, that was a great learning experience of this is what it means to keep time. Yeah. I studied some tabla with Robert Chapel, which I wish I had time to dedicate time to now. Um, since I'm not teaching tabla, <laughs> those drums just sit on my shelf, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that was kind of a new thing. I, unfortunately, I did not get to do very much steel band mm-hmm. at Northern because that was like the one big thing that I wish could have been different is because steel band rehearses at three in the afternoon every single day. And I still had to have my teaching studio. I didn't get to be a part of that group. So that was one opportunity that, you know, and that's just, that's just life. You know, that as much as I can look back and say, Oh, I wish this, or I wish that like, sure. I missed out on that opportunity. And yes, I do wish that I could have, but I gained something else or had something else. And that's, you know, there's no point in looking back on that part of it. Um, but that was one thing that Northern really offers that is amazing is their steel pan program that, um, there are a lot of percussion majors that still play in the band, even though they're not pan majors. Yeah. And I, I just like to play a lot of chamber music. I had a duo partner that we played a lot of duets with. There was another duo that we did like a duo of duos and put some quartets together too. (laughs) That was even outside of the curriculum. My colleague, Amanda Duncan, um, we started at the same time. Um, She did a lot of pan playing, even though she's a percussion major. And we did like a marimba pan duo that Robert Chapel had written for him and Liam, Liam Teague. Um, So like little things like that, that are very like Northern things um, that were just really, really lovely, really wonderful. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of stresses through school, just trying to manage it all. But the community, um, the community of people at Northern, I feel like is what I'm most grateful for and the connections that have lasted, you know, still seeing people at PASIC and that whether it's people I went to school with or people who were alums years before me, it was like, Oh yeah, you're a Northern person. You know, there are a lot of schools that have that kind of camaraderie that, um, it's just really nice to connect with other people who are dedicated to their art and also just genuinely good human beings. Was Greg doing um, the Barenbao stuff at the time? Yes. Yeah. That was another one of those things that when I got there, they had a pretty solid group that were already like sextet of people playing. And then when they needed to kind of, when one person graduated or left, they would put in another, but that was another thing that I didn't really have the time to dedicate to that group. I learned bare minimum of the instrument <laughs> of the bare bow. And that's about it. So that was another one of those things that I kind of stuck with the classical percussion route um, because I just didn't have time to do some of the extra stuff. How are Robert and Greg similar or different as teachers? As opposite, I think, as you about could be, mm. um, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And especially at the time, I mean, Greg had come from New York and still had a lot of New York in him. Um, and Robert is like, ah, sure. Like, well, well relaxed, very Costa Rica. Like, so he spends a lot of time in Costa Rica now, uh-huh. you know, so you get like very different paces yeah, sure. of energy. Yeah. Um, so, and I think it was just, it was a lovely balance of, 
the high energy New York pace and the like really relaxed. Yeah, sure. You know, just chill. Um, and I think they helped kind of bring each other a little bit towards the middle while still maintaining their own individuality. Um, so there's just so much to learn. They're both so brilliant. Um, but, but they, they teach it in such different ways and, um, it's fun. I think it's great to have a variety of, of styles and experiences and instructors. And that's kind of what makes the world go around. I know it's, it's just a master's in terms of, and this gets the, I mean, and I mean it this way, which is, was there like a finishing, did you have to do, was it just recitals, thesis, was there anything that kind of completes the degree there? Yeah, um, there are big recitals and everybody had to do a big research paper. Yeah, you had mentioned in one of your messages of like repertoire. So I was, I was even like, what did I play on my recitals? Mm-hmm. Uh, on one of them, I did the Raybonds. I think that might've been the first one. Played the Bobo Odyssey from Penelope. That was one of like the hardest marimba pieces I think I played in some of those licks. Um, and then the, uh, Takayoshi, I think it was the composer. Um, there was a Rhapsody for marimba, drum set, flute, bass. I, I don't like that was just a fun piece I came across that I'm like, oh yeah, this will be fun. So I put a, that together with a group. And then um, a friend of mine wrote... For, for each recital, my first year recital and my second year recital wrote a piece for me for percussion and dancer. So the oh. first year was um, modern dancer. I had one of my friends come in and the second year was um, percussion with tap dancer. Um, Brian Walk, um, W-A-C-H. So those pieces, I know one of them is on YouTube. I don't know if they both are, um, but feel free to you know YouTube that and see what pops up. Yeah, so some unique pieces, just fun, fun stuff. Those two pieces with dancer, were, were the dancing parts rhythms or specific choreography? What, or, and was that part of the percussion score? The tap piece was specific. And we met with the dancer several times to kind of figure out, like, here's what is written that makes sense with tap. And here's what we need to change so it actually works with, with a tap dancer's movements. So there are a couple of those things, um, you know, just to kind of tweak together. And then uh, the first year, the one with uh, modern dance, um, Cheryl Okuda, the dancer, did all of the choreography. Um, so we would record the percussion part and then she would figure out what movements uh, made sense with that. And it was it was beautiful. And it was, the composer had a really lovely sort of, uh, my sounds control her like she's a puppet. So there were some really very cool movements initially to get her moving. And then mm-hmm. the way she moved through some of the more lyrical sections were just gorgeous. What was there, was the paper anything of, of note that you had to write or was it? We just had to pick a topic and go through all the research stuff. My big paper was on gender and percussion mm-hmm. and how that, looked through yeah also again i haven't read that paper in probably a decade yeah or since i wrote it i don't it's been a little that's hard to think about too like sure. how long i've actually been <laughs> done with grad school like oh yeah it's been a long time <laughs> yeah when you finish with that degree is there anything that having a master's influences students pay raise school, like anything that's related to your, your work, aside from the education part that that influences after? Nothing specific, because okay. since I work for myself, I set yeah. my own pay rate. But when kids know, oh, you have a master's in percussion performance, 
you know, or like if parents know that they're like, Oh, I didn't even know you could get that degree. Um, you know, I think it just, it just brings some extra, some extra credit to what I do knowing that I have two degrees in music, um, that it's no official pay raise or anything like that. But I think for families knowing that they're paying somebody who is trained to actually teach their kid, um, makes a difference. How far in to your own teaching did, was the ensemble part something you immediately did or did that take some time before you start developing that part of your program? Um, the initial starting of it was really early on before I started grad school. Hmm. Okay. Um, so within, okay. Within the five, cause it was five years when I finished undergrad to grad school. So within that five years somewhere, I started that program 2008. I liked percussion ensemble. I missed playing chamber music and I had like three students that I said, Hey, do you want to play a piece this summer and do a percussion ensemble? So we did, we played, um, James Romag parallax for four toms, each player on one Tom. Cause I had that, I had that gear. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> and then after we did that, I think I'm pretty sure that was a summer so that went really well. So then that fall, I started two levels. Here's my older kids and here's my beginners. And then from there, it just kept growing. I think the biggest group I've had is like 20 something, 21 for a regular season. And you just divide them however it makes sense. Um, there have been some years where I just have a group of 12, everybody all together. And other years where I've split it into three groups, the advanced group, kind of your regular group, and then your beginners. Yeah. So it was really early on. And then I always, for that group, I always let kids sign up first and then I pick repertoire because for me, it's all about picking the right repertoire for the kids you have, not here's what I think I'm going to do. Okay. Now who do I give this to? Tell me a little bit about what happened pandemic wise. Yeah. Um, I, I lost one kid. Wow. That's okay. Everybody else pivoted online. We did what we needed to do to just function and stay connected. I reached out to my percussion ensemble regulars and said, Hey, if you want to do something, we'll do something. If you want to do nothing, we'll do nothing. So I had 10 kids that wanted to do something. So we would all meet on zoom I would split them into rooms so they could work on duets. So yeah. then, and I would float and everybody had their coaching time and their practice time. Um, because then at least one person could have their mic on and right. could kind of lead the rehearsal and then you could flip. And then that season we did videos as our like final project that once you know your duet, record your part and I'll splice it side by side. And then you can see the duet performed. Um, so we actually did have semi ensemble season, um, but just really modified. Um, yeah. And I'm really glad I don't have to teach on zoom anymore. Occasionally we'll use it for like a backup, but yeah, it's been quite the transition. I'm glad to just be back. It was, it was challenging to pivot out of that just in figuring out how to function in the world again right. and how to, communicate with people and where do I stand? Do I, how can I, can I reach in and write something on your music? Can I actually touch your hand and adjust a stick shape or, you know, and you know, if you're touching somebody's hand, you got to, is it okay if I adjust? And okay. Yeah. You, 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 it's important to have that verbal, um, 
you know, so, you know, everybody's comfortable with whatever adjustments you're doing with hand positions and, and, um, you know, stick, um, stick preps and all of that stuff. It happened. And I like to move forward. (laughs) That there were, I feel like there was a time period where everybody was like, Oh, what did you do? How did you do this? You know? And like, I think for many of us, it's, we just don't like to think about it. Let's, let's be very grateful for what we get to do every day. Now that we get to make music in real space with real people and like feel the vibration of the instrument and not have a filter. Well, that's great that you only lost one student. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm very, very lucky that everybody just plowed through. And even that kids want it. Cause I was like, ah, we can not do ensemble. It's fine. But they're like, no, we want to do something. I think they just wanted to try to have something that was normal. Yeah. Um, it was great. All right. Well, uh, finish up with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. And first question is what's an issue in percussion education, percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Lack of practicing or effort of reading music. Like I, I'm as much as you tell me to look at, yes. As much as you tell me to look at the page, I'm just going to memorize it. Ah, like, no, you just go slow, read it as slow as it takes you pause. When you need to pause, you have to be able to read and play at the same time. If you refuse to read music, you are doing a disservice to yourself. End of soapbox. Is this something that for the student, does it appear to be, they just this is not a skill set that they have before they get to you? Yes. So usually it's like, this is hard and it's easier to memorize. So you got to like work with the kid. Right. Um, sometimes it's been ingrained for so long that like the, the child just feels like it's, it's impossible. So it's, it's very challenging to work through that stuff. But when a kid is like, yes, I'm going to try to do it and I'm going to do what you say, and then it will help. Then it's great. If a kid is like, no, I can't do it. Then it's, it's very hard to get the buy-in from the student if they just have that wall. So right. just very challenging. What, how do you, so what, what do you do when, you, how do you work with that? I assume you have to figure out like a way, a workaround. To- yeah. Sometimes it's giving them different exercises. Sometimes it's incorporating little small bits of let's do like this one section where we're staring at our thing. And then we're just going to re- memorize this other thing. Like, because if it's too overwhelming, then that's not helping the kid either. So it's finding different exercise or an unfamiliar tune. But if it's not familiar, then sometimes they don't want to practice it either. So you got to incorporate either some sight reading or some flashcards and you got to really hype it up when they do what you want them to do. Yeah. Like overjoyed, like, yes, yes, you you know, even if it's not perfect, like that's part of the process. That's amazing. Like you did the thing and you're, you know, yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, Take this anywhere you want. Also feel free to include your, if what you remember of your thesis, but being in the percussion field as a woman. Yeah. I wish that that didn't even have to be a question, sure. but it is like, you know, like you mentioned, I, because I wrote my whole like final paper on that, there was plenty of stuff to research and th- I wish it wasn't the case. Can we just be humans? Can we just be percussionists? Mm-hmm. And I, and I find that many people are in that space of the people that I typically work with we're in that space. You're just a percussionist and we move forward. You've got to have some thick skin or develop it very quickly um, in certain situations. 
you've got to be able to stand up for yourself. Um, you've got to be able to ignore certain things, unfortunately. And I think it's important for everybody to have someone like them to look up to and see. I can't remember any female percussionist that I, cause I, you know, I didn't grow up being a percussionist. I grew up being a pianist. Sure. Um, but when I was at Milliken, there was, you know, one of my friends was a year older than me and I was like, Oh, I want to be like her. Cause she's playing really cool stuff. And, you know, so, I mean, it's important to have that, but I think as educators, if we just foster individuals to be individuals, wherever people lie on the spectrum, then I hope that that doesn't have to be a question um, in coming years. Let me, I'm going to pivot then off of it. In what ways in the last five years or so has anything related to kind of inclusion, diversity, equity, any of those kind of buzzwords, has that, have you thought about that, um, those items in terms of maybe what you program, who you teach, all that stuff? I teach whoever comes to me, whoever I can take. Every community is a little bit different, but I think it's when you have a student that feels like they might be the only person that represents whatever, whatever, however they identify. Um, It's important that you are extra conscious of inclusivity with those individuals you know, whatever it is that they may identify with, it's, it's just making sure that everybody feels valued and important for who they are. And I do think there's a lot of buzzwords that get, (laughs) you know, but, um, but I think when it comes down to individual value and community support, if we, if we focus on those two things to make sure every student feels valued for who they are and that they feel they are part of a community, then it doesn't matter who or what you identify with or as, you know, even just thinking back about like my, I guess it would have been last year's graduates. There's a group of people who in terms of personality and background could probably, I mean, maybe could be more different, but like hardly (laughs) such a vast array of personalities and backgrounds. But when you put them together, it was such an amazing group of percussionists yeah. And, and I think it's, it's finding that commonality, um, that can help us just be a community. And that's what I try to focus on. Like, you know, of like, Oh, it's just the boys or is it the girls or like whatever you, your pronouns are like, I, it, maybe it sounds bad, but I just don't care. Like, I don't care. We are a group and we support each other in all of our individual expressions. And our goal right now is to make ensemble music and that will make us happy. And that will bring us together. And I guess, I guess that's, that's where my focus, where I try to keep the focus of the students as well. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh yeah, probably. So <laughs> there's, um, I have taught the last few summers at the Northern Illinois summer percussion camp. Mm-hmm. And as part of our warm up you know, I do kind of a, like, let's breathe, let's build, like, let's learn how to plank and hold an alignment, you know, and do like some warm up things like that. And in one of our scavenger hunt games, there was do an impression of a faculty member, you know, and there were, there were a couple of like, okay, take a big breath in and exhale out and like lengthen your spine and, you know, all of that stuff. So there were a couple of those that were pretty spot on. Yeah. They like immediately like, that's me. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Shake their hand. That was 
Well, well done. Well done. Yes. Yes. You get your points for your scavenger hunt. <laughs> goose, goose chase or whatever I think was the app we used. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical item of clothing. Heels. One pair of heels. You can't play drum set in those. Right. That's but totally impractical. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know how people like that do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't function in heels. So, yes, I have one pair. Very impractical. Is it like, mm-hmm. was it, were you like a bridesmaid or something like that? And that was... No, it's like if I go out on a fancy date, okay, uh-huh. or if I go to a wedding, that mm-hmm. you know, I have them. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh, look, it's my heels. And then you grab like, you know, your actual sweater or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Uh, what's your biggest kitchen mess up? I don't bake. I mean, I can if I have to, sure. but I just try to make, fresh food and if you just put fresh food in a good sauce you really can't go wrong yeah i don't i don't know sorry i have a poor answer or no answer for that one that's okay well do you have a do you have a signature (laughs) do you have a signature dish that you make i do a lot of tofu scrambles okay or like you know throw some vegetables with some noodles yeah yeah pretty simple just very easy i like easy yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you, have you got the one thing I, that, that my wife and I always kind of struggle with is getting tofu really crisp, like without burning, yeah. you know, it's like a, mm-hmm. we, we would go, I was talking about like, we, you would get, go to a, one of the local Chinese places would do like a bean curd and you'd be like, how do you all get this tofu? Like, this is amazing. Yeah. I can't do if it. you like take, if you take your time and you drain it and you bake it, that's probably your best bet. Okay. I don't take that kind of time. So I just do the lazy <laughs> way. I'm like, I'll just crumble it up and toss it in the pan. Sometimes yeah. I'll chop it and like fry it a little bit, but yeah, yeah. No, I go easy. <laughs> yeah. But you got the extra firm and squeeze as much water out as you can. Cause you don't want smushy tofu unless you're having like miso soup. Otherwise it, yeah. Yeah. You got to put yeah. some good sauce on it too. Gotcha. awesome all right what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie i don't watch movies or tv very often so usually my husband just picks out like whatever he's interested in and i'm like okay this is fun i like it um like all the marvel movies i enjoy those they're fun they're good i I don't like the stupid humor oh like yeah those any of those movies just not i don't care to watch them but just i'd rather do something else Okay. What's a favorite book? Watership Down. Oh um, yeah. Yes, because I have some pet rabbits, and just to like to hear the story of the rabbits, and like when I, I listened to it on audiobook, and it was it was like I can just picture their movements and their. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's probably my fave. Do you read it to the rabbits? I haven't. I do have one of my students has bunny sat for me and she has read them stories. It's so sweet. (laughs) So sweet. What does, what does bunny sitting involve? Oh yes. So um, they have hay all the time. We switch out their fresh water and then they get veggies twice a day. So when she comes to bunny sit, 
She will make sure they have clean water. She'll give them their fresh, fresh veggies, sweep up their mess because if you ever have had a bunny or wish to have a bunny, you need to know they make a mess at least three times a day. Mm. Like I sweep in the morning, I sweep at night, sometimes midday, and you'd never know. You'd never know. They just like, but you know, that's why it's important that they're in a space where they can, they can just be bunnies, run around and make a mess. And then you sweep it up. So you're happy as a human. And then they make a mess because they're bunnies, but they're uh-huh. wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Do, do your bunnies have a, a favorite percussion instrument? No, I don't think so. I think they've gotten used to all the sounds at this point. Like it just doesn't phase them. Mm. If you were in their room with a drum, they would hate it. But at this point, in their proximity to the studio, they're fine. I don't know if they were like, I don't know, Third Coast fans or something like that, or just got very specific. Not that I've discovered thus far. Okay. But it's, so uh, ongoing situation is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if anything, yeah, jumps out at me. Nice. Mm-hmm. I like I like what you did there. That was nice. <laughs> anything hops to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, your hometown in Southern Illinois, Mm -hmm. did it have a, a restaurant of note or even just like a family, something like, Oh, like the the freeze, the the tasty freeze freeze was like the thing where everybody, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your ice cream and your like breadsticks and cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They had real food at some point that I just ate the breadsticks and cheese all the time. That was like the place to go. Mm. That was it. That was the only thing that was open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there eventually was a subway, which is where I had my first job. There was a Hardee's. It was within walking distance from the high school. So if you couldn't drive, that's where you would walk to lunch every time Mm -hmm. for people who went off campus. Yeah. That's about it. Not much. All right. When people come to Chicago, is there some place that you're like, okay, they're not going to tell you to go to this restaurant or to this location but kind of you should go to it's like yeah yeah art institute right okay uh you know all the stuff but like well i mean there's there's a couple there's a couple like close to us that are kind of our go-tos when we're just local in the burbs but Mm -hmm. i mean everybody always talks about the pizza um gino's east has a um dairy-free deep dish version now that I discovered when I was down for down in the city for Midwest that I didn't realize. Cause you know, Chicago deep dish, that's like the thing, yeah, but yeah. if you can't do dairy, then yeah. you can't do the thing. So that I was very pleased that mm-hmm. I discovered the non-dairy deep dish at that Gino's East. Amazing. Oh, great. like I hadn't, yes, I hadn't had deep dish since like a long time ago, the last time where I pretended like I could handle dairy. And now <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause like, you're like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then you feel sick and you're like, oh, yeah, no, it wasn't that bad. And you're like, no, yeah, it was. Okay. I need to stop eating that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah right. So yeah. So any of our dairy free people, if you want deep dish, I don't know if all the Geno's East locations have it, but I know the one that was downtown close to McCormick place mm-hmm. had it. All right. Good stuff. Good, good to know. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to you still want to get to? Japan. Any particular reason? Um, Keiko Abe. Mm, sure. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. Mostly just Keiko. 
I mean, there's plenty of other things in Japan <laughs> that, you know, that are <laughs> interesting and wonderful. But I think because of her, that's why I've always wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Do you have a Do you have a favorite piece of hers? Variations on Japanese children's songs I played when I was in college, so that like always holds a special place for me. Sure. Um, but there's so many good ones, so many good ones. What is your uh, best non life threatening injury? I I've never broken a bone, so that's great. I, I somehow I'm kind of clumsy though, so I like will run into things. I think I just get in a hurry <laughs> and I'm like, I'm thinking about something else. And I'll like hit the corner of the wall, you know, like run into a doorway. I, I think I just get in a hurry. So I don't know. I mean, I had, I had a pretty nasty elbow injury, like just from not taking care of my body enough through undergrad. So I had, a, I had to like stop playing for a little bit, which is also why grad school had a pause. Um, and maybe also why I'm kind of into the fitness side now, because, you know, taking care of your body is really important. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I have best injuries. They're all just either dumb or not, not good. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What, What was the nature of the, of the elbow injury? Basically it was overuse without having, I didn't have enough shoulder and upper arm strength to accommodate what I was asking my forearms and hands to do. So I had some issues on both the inner and outer elbow and I had to go through some pretty extensive therapy for a while to, mm. to fix all that stuff. So yes, if you're listening, take care of your body, <laughs> make sure you have enough strength in all parts of your back and shoulders and arms that can support what you ask your forearms and hands to do. It's very important. Just if you don't mind me asking a little another thing to follow up on that, um, was that something that would show up as a like would it would it get puffy? Was it like you were just sore? Like it would it was a soreness that would, just would never go away, or it was very painful. And then there were times that I like I couldn't grip, I couldn't even grip my stick very well on my left hand. Or if I was playing for a long period of time, I remember in like a performance. <laughs> I was like barely hanging onto my stick and like the grip that you always net that you always teach your kids to never use. That's the only way I could hold on to the stick by the end of the piece. And then after all of my therapy stuff, actually the last instrument that I was able to play again, that I had to keep not playing for was tambourine because when you, the impact of the tambourine, then as it shoots down to the ulnar side of your elbow, it was the the holding, the holding, yeah, of the holding hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would hit that nerve and I, it was just really, really painful to play tambourine more so than sticks. I kind of block out some of those years too, <laughs> because yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I couldn't pick up like, you know, like a gallon jug of milk or water or whatever it was. Like it was just too, it was too painful on that side. Um, so luckily I had a really great, um, really great doctor that finally, I've seen a number of of physicians that were like, Oh, I'll just give you the steroid or you just have to deal with this because of what you do. I finally had one doctor that said, this is not normal. We're going to fix this. And she did. So it was a lot of, a lot of therapy to, um, Graston therapy was like the one thing I did a lot of, um, where you kind of rip out the adhesions in the muscle and then relay, then it rebuilds itself so it can lay properly across the muscle fibers. Um, so yeah, I think it's just finding a doctor that will actually fix the problem and not just like stick a bandaid on it that doesn't do anything. How long were you, did you have to stop playing? I would say it was probably 
three years that I had to be very cautious. Um, I mean, I had to stop playing for several months and then it was like, I can play for 10 minutes. Okay. Now I can play for 15 minutes. Okay. Now I can start doing larger intervals on the marimba without hurting. Okay. But this kind of (laughs) velocities, you can only play for like two minutes before your elbow starts hurting with the large intervals. Um, yeah, thing, you know, things like that, that I had to, I still have to be pretty cautious of. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned about the gallon of milk, but was there other things, other activities where you're like, you know what, that's actually also hurting the non-percussion things that were like also hurting your elbow that you just hadn't even necessarily. <laughs> oh, stuff that I was doing that was aggravating it. Yeah, um, yeah. When it was really bad, I wasn't really working out, which I'm sure contributed to the lack of support of other muscles crocheting. I know that sounds weird, but my grandmother taught me to crochet when I was little. And so I like, I like doing that, but I, I found that I would hold tension in my hands a lot. Like I would just grip too tightly Yeah. when I was doing it. So I had to kind of pause that and again, reset my form and reset my approach to be relaxed if I would do that again. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's in a better place, right? Yes, absolutely. That, that, that is, is, that's as good. I still have to be cautious thing, right? from time to time. Yes. Still have to be cautious from time to time because, you know, if I, if I don't take care of myself, then it'll flare up again. Um, right. Or if I overuse it and don't stretch enough, you know, sometimes it can flare up, but all in all in a pretty good spot. Right. Oh yeah. And again, for precautionists who are listening, the um, uh, Dr. Darren Workman, the, his book, um, what is it? In, in treatment and prevention for percussion injuries, mm-hmm. percussion injuries, Treatment and prevention, I think is what it's called. Anyway, Google something like that and you'll find it. Dr. Darren Workman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great, great book. Mm. All right. Last couple of questions. Strangest, okay. funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? One of my grad recitals, I was playing To the Earth on Flower Pots. Mm-hmm. And I had them set up just in a line straight in front of me. And I shifted forward before I prepped my stick out enough. And towards the end of the piece, I shoved one of the the end flower pot off the table. And in the performance, it went smashing to the ground and broke in a million pieces. Hmm. And so I just finished the piece on four pots instead of five. And it's done. And some people thought it was on purpose, that it was poetic. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, you're right. Yes. Done. Exactly. <laughs> when that happened, did you, did you break it all? Or were you just like in your head, like, Oh crap. Okay. Oh, and Internally, like, internally, I was a mess. Externally. I somehow pulled it together. Nice. <laughs> you, I wonder if there's could be a moment where you're like, you know, I could just break all of these to finish it. You know, right. That never actually occurred to me, but could could have an updated, revised version of "To the Earth." Yes, ranged Angela Kepley. <laughs> oh, yes, awesome. All right, last question, Angela. Yeah. What one piece of art could be? Music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything uh, has impacted you the most recently. This tree. Okay. If you're just listening, you can't see it. Um, but this, okay. My grandfather just passed away recently and I got this from his house and I just thought, just just describe the, the image you're showing. 
Yeah. So it is just a kind of a thick base of tree, but then it pretty quickly branches out into some thinner branches and has no leaves and is all just yellowish in the background. But it has has like this little tiny house or farm in the tiniest corner of the back. And there's just space and grass. And um, I just really like kind of the foundation of that, that like you're true to your core and then whatever branches out and however thick or thin those are, are just different avenues of your life and your personality and the people who have influenced you. And then I love that there's that little farm in the back because that's, where I grew up and it just is, you know, my family is very important to me and to have that knowing that's always a piece of you. So I feel like that, I mean, I just acquired that very recently and I, I just, every time I haven't even gotten to hang it up yet because I got to fix the hook on it. But every time I see it, I'm like, it just, it reminds me of, of kind of who I am as an individual and how important family is. And, and I feel like it's, it has some, musical seeds that are forming on some it's it'll come out in I don't know if it'll be a piece or if it'll be just influencing kind of the way I approach things and um yeah so I feel like that particular piece of art has been very present with me recently your grandfather painted it no it just came from his house um and yeah so we were going through his things and and I was like I would like to have that because that that speaks to me. So, so I have it. All right, Angela, we are done. Thank Thank you so much much for having me. This is wonderful. So great to catch up with Angela again. I wish her all the continued success with her studio Hope she continues to compose and produce for the greater community, and I look forward to catching up once again at PASIC or elsewhere in the near future. This week's rave are three pretty short books, but all very effective in helping musicians in their careers. The books are Majoring in Music, All the Stuff You Need to Know, by previous podcast guest and now retired administrator Rich Holly, Majoring in Education, All the Stuff You Need to Know, by Rich Holly and Lemuel Watson, and The Musician's Toolbox, Thoughts on Teaching and Learning Music, by Diane Petrella and Nick Petrella. These have all been out for a while, but I very recently had the chance to read them and thought they contained great information for undergrad students and folks continuing to be involved in education and performance as their livelihood. Previous podcast guests, Rich Holly wrote the Majoring in Books while he was still teaching at Northern Illinois University and was part of the administration there. He used his experiences in and out of the classroom to talk about personal health, making one's life work, finances, selecting schools and jobs, etc., while also discussing the finer points of being a musician. There's a lot of fantastic information about how to practice, the importance of having fun and enjoying what you do, why you need to be able to say yes and no to things at times, and many other great points. In the education book, written by Rich Holly and Lemuel Watson, a longtime research educator and administrator, there are discussions about what to expect as an ed major, the types of courses and certifications one needs, the importance of being in and experiencing 
primary and secondary school education from the teacher side as an undergrad student, the importance of joining organizations and attending conferences, and a lot more. And both books are about 90 pages or so and are generally easy to read and understand. The Musician's Toolbox is a great resource from Diane and Nick Petrella, both of whom have been involved in teaching, administration, and artistry for many years. The book is structured as a long list of 111 essential tools for any musician, and the advice is mostly evergreen. One of the best parts of this book is the setup of explaining the tool that would be useful to have. For example, number one, encourage your students to attend live concerts and discuss what was performed. Then, gives usually at least two items that you can do to get the tool that is being presented. It's very practical and hands-on and worth checking back into on a regular basis to make sure those tools are being sharpened. Pat self on back for weak joke. No matter what, majoring in music, majoring in education, and the musician's toolbox are great resources, not only personally, but also for your students. Available wherever books are sold. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time.